This is the Out of Water Podcast. No, my goodness, when you get away from God's absolutes, there's no limits to the evils that humanity will do. So when God comes and says, here are my laws, here's 10 laws that cover broadly all of life, hold to these ethics, they're really, really important. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water podcast. Nope. That was podcast. I sound like I'm from Massachusetts. Welcome to a pad. Yeah. We got our pad mics. We got our... (laughs) Anyway, all right. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith. I'll be your host. Joining me today is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. And today we are jumping into Exodus chapter 20, which everybody knows is the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to be going through this. I don't know how many of these we're going to get through, but I would imagine this is going to be a multi-part kind of walking through Exodus 20. Uh, the Ten Commandments, what they mean, what they don't mean, what, why this is so important, why this has become uh, so important for all of Western civilization in some sense. And so let's jump right in. What comes to mind when you think of the Ten Commandments? Tablets. Tablets, right. Which, by the way, in Exodus 20, God is not giving them tablets yet. Like so, huh. And remember in the last chapter, chapter 19, it was this scary mountain with all the fire and thunder and the horns blaring and the people are like, oh, get them away, get them away. It's, really t- it's meant to be terrifying, right? But then you notice the very first words of Exodus chapter 20 is, and God spoke all these words saying so you got to imagine moses with god as kind of the mediator but god's voice is literally booming over this mountain and he is about to speak with with a loud kind of thunder voice the ten commandments i guess i've never thought about that they hear this original giving as well yeah that's right so this is going to be where they're like oh yes all that we will do and which is laughable because they violate all of this But it's not until chapter 24, after he not only gives the Ten Commandments, but a lot of other laws where God is going to come and he's he's literally going to say, Moses, come up here on the mountain. I've written out the Ten Commandments for you on these tablets. So we're not at the tablets yet, but yeah, I think of that too. Like for whatever reason, everybody imagines the same tablets, the same shape. They're, you know, the little semi-circle top. That's what you envision. Is that that movie, that really old movie? Charlton Heston, the, yeah. ten, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure that's part. Is that's of, why it happened. I'm sure part of it, and everything that you've ever seen throughout history. That's that's the way that they're they look. That's what they look like. And by the way, anytime you had a really sacred covenant in ancient culture, so going back to Babylonians, Assyrians, all those guys, they would write their laws in either tablets like this stone or like an obelisk that's in stone a Hammurabi code, like it was always written in stone. So, and that's just kind of an interesting thing, like a little total side nugget that has been kind of a Sam thought that's worthless, but here it is. Let's hear it. (laughs) If you go through history, it seems like everything gets less permanent Mm. to where like, if you go back to the oldest writings, they, they literally write them in stone, which they're still there. You know, if you, if you know where it is, it's still there. And then stone gives way to clay that gives way to parchment and papyrus and then paper. And now it's digital. It's like not even a thing. 
And it's like with everything, information and wisdom, even by the way it's communicated, seems to get less and less permanent, which is just fascinating to me. Do you think there's something to read into that? Probably not. <laughs> but, but I do think it, it kind of mocks this modern idea that we've got it all figured out. You know, it's, it's such a, a mist. It's like, you know, if the cloud goes down or the internet ever fails, it's like all of our libraries are just gone. <laughs> like, what happens to them? If there's an EMP and every electronic thing gets zapped, what's left? Like, all of my stuff, gone, except for what's printed. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think you had to put a lot more thought into what you said and wrote down back then mm-hmm. than we do now. Like, we can just pour out tweets and blog posts and all this stuff which maybe you put thought into it but maybe you put no thought into it so it's kind of interesting that like maybe it's good that that won't last yeah well now because it's so easy to put thoughts down every idiot with a pen or a computer or whatever can offer up their own thoughts but back then it was such an ordeal to create something that you had to write literally in stone with chisels and things like that that if whatever you were putting down needed to be really worth it yeah. So it kind of filtered out the riffraff. And as time goes on, you know, parchment was really expensive. Papyrus was really, really expensive. That's why if you read first century Greek, they didn't put spaces between words. They didn't put punctuation because they wanted to make the most out of the material they were writing on. Where now I have books, <laughs> you know, like everybody has books and a blog and an autobiography and a podcast. And, you know, like everybody feels entitled to come to the table with ideas and it's a lot harder to filter out who's worthy <laughs> to have a seat at the table of ideas. It's very democratic, but then it becomes really hard to filter out. Yeah, because of what the hope is with that is that we as listeners would be smart enough to say, oh, this shouldn't get any airtime. Correct. But we're not, Yeah, which is it, why we're confused in our world. Yeah, our society is drawn to the, the you know, the the absurd, yeah. you know, the whoever can scream the loudest or do the dumbest or they're the ones that get all the volume and the really wise voices are now on the margins. You know, we, we could probably stand to go back to stone and chisel for, <laughs> for a while to figure out who deserves to, to write stuff and to say things. That's, a, that's very undemocratic, but I feel like that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, we're in a warped democracy, knowledge-wise. Completely. Yeah, there, there used to be this old argument, and there were two books. You know, you had Huxley going up against uh, Fair- Orwell. Orwell, thank you. Yeah, Orwell, 1984. And there were two visions of how society would become corrupted. And when, when Orwell wrote, it was very much like the government's going to dictate, the tyranny is going to come, and it's going to say that everything is dictated, and you must agree with the prescribed version of truth, and it's 1984. Like, every the ministry of truth is going to tell you what you're allowed to believe. And then Huxley says it's way more likely that you're going to be so overwhelmed and inundated with, a, with millions of versions of the truth that it's going to be utterly impossible to decipher what is reality because everything will have lost credibility. And it's like you look at like where we're at in the world, you're like, wow. Yeah. I, you know, there's bits of both of them where you're like, the official ministry of truth is telling you so many things that are false and they've lost all credibility. The, the, the institutions that should have credibility have lost all credibility and we're left with an internet, you know, that comes to us with a million versions of everything 
and you're overwhelmed to the point where you can't be utterly confident of who's telling the truth. Mm. And that's why in Brave New World, they took Soma because there was so much information. They just said, hey, this isn't worth it. I'm just going to fill myself with pleasure and act like none of it exists. That's it. You can see <laughs> kind of how prophetic that is. I mean, it's he was able to see where we were going in a lot of ways because I think we, we do that. And that's why living in a culture that is that full of deception and lies, the scripture becomes all the more precious because it is rooted in the ancient. It's written in the rock. You know, it's, it hasn't changed. It's, it's held up through all these centuries and millennia as, as a key to civilization and, and what makes prosper, prosperity for the family, for, mm. for society, for cities. It's held up and we need to get back to it as the bedrock of how we see life, right? And so let's, let's jump in to um, the Ten Commandments. So it says, and God spoke all these words, so he's speaking them out loud, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And I love, you know, that he begins the Ten Commandments by reminding you, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Before I tell you what my expectations are, before I tell you what obedience looks like, I want to remind you that I chose you before you could obey or not. I saved you, I redeemed you, I called you before you could prove yourself to be good or not, you're mine, right? And so God starts the Ten Commandments. He starts the law by telling you, you're accepted and I've chosen you before you could even prove yourself, which is the gospel, right? Yeah. We, we don't obey to earn the favor of God. We obey because we have the favor of God and it's out of a sense of gratitude. And it's kind of like another way to say the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. And then it says, you'll have no other gods before me because mm-hmm. I'm, I am he. Yeah, I mean, all of it folds into that and it's, it's communicating. And it's like, before God gives the commandments, there's still a moral law. And, and it goes like this. Like, so when people talk about the books of the law, like you're like, okay, we're in Exodus and the 10 commandments haven't come yet. But when it refers to the books of the law, it's referring to Genesis. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, what laws in Genesis? Like don't eat from the tree. But besides that, maybe some others, it's, it's all stories of the patriarchs and what, what God did with Noah and Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and the brothers. And you're like, what, what does that have to do with the law? And it's really instructive when God says, I am the Lord, your God, then all of a sudden you recognize, wait a minute, let's go back to Genesis. And we're told that God created mankind in his image, mm. which, and, and he made us to be a bride for himself. That's the idea. Like we're to be in, in special relationship with him. But if we're made in the image of God, that means we're made to reflect the character of God. And so even though Genesis isn't laying down and saying, you shall and shall not, you see the character of God. You see the covenant faithfulness of God all through the stories of Genesis. And so then you are to, to reflect that character. That's part of the law. How you see who God is, is how you should be. Which is kind of an interesting thing because the Bible is showing you how you're supposed to be before it comes out and expressly tells you, you must be this. Hmm. And in reality, what the Ten Commandments are, in part, is a reflection of what God's character is. Like everything that you're going to see in the Ten Commandments is a reflection of his nature, right? It tells us a lot about him. 
Well, we've already been learning about him. Like in Genesis, what do you find out? You find out that he's a God of the underdog. You find out that he's a God that treasures life. You find out that he's a God that finds marriage and vows and covenants very, very sacred. You find out that he's a God who cares about his name and does not like hypocrisy. I mean, you see all that in Genesis just by watching the story of who God is. And so now it's just, you already know who I am, but let's codify it. Yeah, it's not God coming to him saying, do as I say, not as I do. It's saying, no, this is who I am. Now, it's even a generous thing to give us the law. We're not guessing about who God is or how we should act. It's him graciously coming to us and saying, okay, I've shown you all of this, but let me make sure you have it down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Paul's going to talk about how when the law is given, because you can watch God and you can see God and you can put him in a different category and say, yeah, but he's God and I'm not. But when he comes and says, these are the expectations of you, Paul says, like, the law serves as a schoolmaster. Like it shows you just how far you fall short. So the moment that you see it written down, you're like, wow, I don't measure up to that. And I don't measure up to that. And I don't measure up to that. And it's, it's meant to, to, to humble you so that it drives you into the arm of the same God who's also a savior, who is the God who chases after all the scoundrels of Genesis and the scoundrels of Exodus. We're those same scoundrels. And the law comes to humble us. It comes to reveal his character. Uh, it comes, honestly, to give a roadmap and a design for the flourishing of society. Because if we followed this, you imagine living in a society where everybody followed the Ten Commandments? Be wild in a good way. Like, nobody lied. I mean, we just talked about how crazy our society is and how we have no regard for truth. Can you imagine just if people told the truth today? Yeah. Like that was a common thing. Even our, our leaders, our media personalities would be a radically different world. If people had a biblical sexual ethic, imagine how much heartbreak would be removed. If people valued life and saw each other with dignity, if people genuinely worshiped God and found their identity in him rather than everything that we strive after, like it would be heaven. Yeah. If everybody obeyed perfectly the Ten Commandments, it would be, it would be heavenly, but we're incapable of doing that. So even though it shows us what's pleasing to God, it shows us how to create a good society, it shows us you know, the measuring stick of God's expectations, we don't meet it. And so it reveals our inadequacy and it drives us to a savior, which is ultimately what the Ten Commandments are pointing at. And this is going to be the Ten Commandments will be the first time in, in, in the redemptive history where the word of God takes form right? But it takes form as stone. And it is meant to drive you to the word of God that will come in flesh. And, and we'll get into this in a, in a later episode, but the giving of the Ten Commandments and the way that this story is told is actually pointing us to the birth of Jesus. And the, the similarities there are really pretty beautiful. But God starts with the gospel, I'm the one who chose you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember that first. Now let's get into what I want from you. So one of the other things, like we don't, in our modern society, we do not like anything that comes and says, I have authority, universal authority that tells everybody how to live, right? Of course. Well, we can't handle that because everybody should do, you know, you chase what's true for you. And we end up in a crazy world, right? That The crazy world that we have now is because everybody feels entitled to invent their own truth. And that that's where you really, you study history. When Hitler decides that he's, we're going to Hitler right, <laughs> right away. out of the gate. 
when Hitler decides, you know, that he needs to exterminate sort certain people, he's not going, this is wicked. I'm going to carry out wicked because I'm the spawn of Satan. No, he thinks he's doing good because he has a worldview that says the weak should not be in the world. He has a Darwinian worldview that says, I want to perpetuate the strong. And how do we do that? How do we make humanity better? Well, we need to get rid of all of the weaker genetics that we find and, and the criminal genetics and the deformed and everything else. And that's not the first time you see that in history. That was the norm before Christianity took over the world. If you go back to the Roman tables of the law, you were required if you had a deformed infant to kill it, mm. right? So we go, oh, how that, that's atrocious. But even modern day, if a, if a baby in utero is diagnosed with Down syndrome, there's a 90% abortion rate right? Oh. So we still have this idea that life is valuable so long as it's life I think is worthy of life. It's really kind of gross. Like yeah. we're not that far off. We dress ourselves up and we say that we're modern, but we still do all this. And so getting back to Hitler, when Hitler did all this and the war crimes that, you know, the world came together and said, how do we punish the Nazis? They were like, they were following the law. Mm. You know, they were following the law that Germans had approved. And how do we punish them for following the law? And they ran into this conundrum in a world that had started walking away from God even back then. They were like, how do, we, how do we hold them accountable? And so the Nuremberg trials come along and they're like, we have to presume that there's a law that's higher than men. That's the only way that we can hold the Nazis accountable is there has to be a higher law than men's opinion. And we're going to hold them accountable. And so the same thing you find in Martin Luther King Jr. when he starts protesting against the evils of racism listen he writes this from the the letter to the from a birmingham jail he says one may well ask how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others the answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws just and unjust i would be the first to advocate obeying just laws one has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine, who's writing, you know, 1600 years earlier. St. Augustine says an unjust law is no law at all. And so then Martin Luther King Jr. goes on. He says, now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? And so here we go, because that's the question. There has to be something above competing opinions. And he says, a just law is man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that comes out of harmony with the moral law, to put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas. And he's writing all this from memory, which is remarkable. He has no books. He's just writing this. Wow, I didn't know that. In terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, he says, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law or natural law. And so the moment that we get away from anything that's eternal, that's established, that's above all human opinion, man, we're in the weeds where we're a boat that's pulled up anchor and you never know where that society is going to land and what it decides is moral. Yeah, we talk about this not all the time, but when we Think about the concepts of good and evil for us to be able to call anything good and for us to be able to call anything evil. There has to be something outside ourselves or like they're saying, it's unjust because what's going on in 2024 is crazy. It's crazy. And if, what if you did this in 1914, they'd be like, no, you, wrong. But you've just lost look how your mind. Long yeah. It's gone. Mm -hmm. And just in this short period of time, it's like, oh, everything's different. So it's based off of what we think and who's in control at the time. Then 
every single time something different's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And any time that you buck the law of God, because God created the world, He designed the world, and He wove these moral laws just like He wove the physical laws through everything. When you when you disobey them, there's consequences. It's going to bring strife. It's going to bring trouble. Everything gets out of whack. That's why. Even people who think, oh, I don't want to be under the biblical law. I don't think that's the truth, right? Almost everybody agrees we're on the wrong track and society's falling apart since we've abandoned it. Yeah. Like, I I don't think people come away and go, you know what? I like our society better now that no one tells the truth and no one values life and crime is rampant and dot, 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 down the line. Like, nobody goes, "This, this is good. But you notice that it's when you abandon the moral truth that everything goes haywire. It's Isaiah who says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And that's the society we live in. Everything is upside down. We refer to things that are genuinely wicked as good and we celebrate them. And then we find things that are noble, that are virtuous, and we punish them now. Hmm. You know, I I just saw the headline where people that were singing holy, holy, holy and singing onward Christian soldier and praying for people as they were coming into an abortion clinic were just prosecuted and face up to 11 years and who knows how that's going to turn out. Mm -hmm. But when a society can do that, right, and then give total pardons to people that have caused destruction and harm and, you know, these people that beat up police officers in New York, Mm -hmm. which, you know, and they walk. There's no, there's no prosecution. Like we live in a society, and there's a million examples of that. We are a society that calls evil good, and we call good evil. And Isaiah says, woe to that. And it's not just, it's not God doesn't necessarily need to bring supernatural punishment to a society where he rains down fire and brimstone on them, though we would deserve it right now, honestly, as a, as a people. It's that it's so woven into the fabric of how he's designed the world that when you deviate from this kind of law, the consequences are devastating for everyone, regardless of what you believe. And so society is always better embracing truth. I don't get my truth. You don't get your truth. There's the truth. That's good that you don't get my truth because that wouldn't be good. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I can say that for me. I mean... And everybody else should be able to agree with that as well. And the, and the other thing that drives me crazy, because we're so myopic in seeing all of human history through the last 20 minutes, because we think we're smarter than everything that's come before, like, yeah. we would never do wicked things like people 60 years ago did. You know, it's crazy. But if you go back through history, every, every civilization, like if you were just trace it out, go to civilizations that have not experienced biblical or Western values, and you find crazy stuff, right? I mean, it's like Islamic cultures, let's just call that out, Islamic cultures and how they treat the marginalized or women and they're not allowed to read in a lot of cultures or drive or, you know, the punishments are barbaric and, and pretty draconian. You, India, before the British colonized them, like they were burning widows along with living widows with the men who just died and funeral pyres. You, you go to indigenous places where you know you have cannibalistic tribes like to say oh humanity all on its own which is a rousseau idea humanity all on its own is just good no we're really really not like i think there's conscience built into everybody 
But good Lord, you you let men chase their own ideas of what's right and wrong, and you end up in some crazy places. And so, like, we're going to do a tour through ancient history with some highlights of ancient laws. These are good. I, you know, let's let's see if if you would feel good. You know, since we don't have any absolute truth, and it's all about the whims of opinion. Well, what if the what if the opinion was like it was in 1600 BC under the Hittites? When and it's, these are not for children. These are not so this for is children. A parental warning. I just want to stop here. Some words will be said that you do not want to play over your car speakers if your children are in the back. Yeah. Seat. So, so next three minutes, I'm going to give you some examples. So brace. This is from the Hittite Code of 1600 BC. If a man rapes a woman in the mountain, it is the man's wrong. He shall die. But if he rapes her in the house, it's the woman's fault. The woman shall die. You think we should go for that one, Will? No. Hittite Code of 1600. Here's another one. If anyone has intercourse with a pig or a dog, he shall die. If a man has intercourse with a horse or a mule, there is no punishment. If an ox spring upon a man for intercourse, the ox shall die, but the man shall not die. If a pig spring upon a man for intercourse, there is no punishment. Like I'm trying to imagine a universe where this, like they're coming up with this with a moral basis that's like, yeah, this sounds good. This, we're good with this. Like this checks out for a lot of people. Like a lot of people just got run by and they were like, yeah. Yeah, I we agree. want that in the code. Yeah, we're all, we're all in favor here. Say aye. aye. Yeah. Do you want to live in this kind of society that's that insane? Or here's the Assyrian code of 1075 BC. If a man divorce his wife, if he wish, he may give her something. If he does not wish, he need not give her anything. Empty, she shall go out. Oh, because they're just betting that the man who really desires to divorce his wife and not take care of her is going to be generous at the end there. Yeah, right? So no rights, no property rights in Assyrian culture. There's another one that if a woman is married and she goes out unveiled, that she is to be beaten and she's to have hot tar poured onto her head. That's the Assyrian code. Here's another one. If a woman in a quarrel injure the testicle of a man, sorry, one of her fingers they shall cut off. And if a physician bind it up and the other testicle, which is beside it, be infected thereby or take harm or in a quarrel, she injure the other testicle, they shall destroy both of her eyes. I'm more concerned about what's going on in this society. Right. That pigs are springing upon people for intercourse that people are just kicking people. It's, it's a, it was a crazy world before the spread of Christian ethics. We do not understand how radically the Judeo-Christian ethics changed the world. And we, we tend to think, oh, no, it was the Roman and Greek society. They did lots of good, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. I have a question. Okay, because all the... All, all right, the, this is Sophia, our sound engineer, has a question. Hello. Um, all the laws that you just listed off mm-hmm. seem so s- dumb. Like, like, what does it matter? Like, that, what situation do you have to be in for that to matter, that you have to make a law out of it, right? And then earlier... Let me, let me put it to you this way. If you lived... 300 years from now and you read a law that said if parents do not allow the state to take to genitally mutilate their child that child shall be removed from their custody you would think my goodness that is that is as barbaric as the assyrians yeah you're taking a child away from a parent because you won't let a physician mutilate their genitals because the state told you you have to Every bit is barbaric, but that's where humanity goes when you abandon moral right. absolutes. Well, earlier you called you called God's law eternal, mm-hmm. which 
insinuates that our law is not, or like the opinions right. of man that they make into law is not eternal. Mm-hmm. So can you like elaborate like what makes, cause that would mean that anything that the Lord says to us is going to last mm-hmm. forever. And so, which insinuates everything that we say will not last. And it only, we only care about it because it's now. In some sense. Yeah. So, so like, can you just elaborate more on why the eternal aspect of God's law makes it like more important or like we have to heed it a lot more than our own opinion? Because it's not just eternal. It's it's woven into the fabric of the universe that we live in right at this moment and tomorrow and 100 years and 300 years. It's always been there. Like God's morality is not changing depending on what millennia you're in. If the Assyrians had obeyed God's law, they would have found prosperity for, for society and for their souls, right? It would have been just as true for them then as it is now. And so when man comes up with laws and unique situations that that maybe you have to take God's law and say, how does it come to bear on this unique situation? There's there's a rea- there's an old saying, all truth is God's truth. So you, so you could find wisdom from somebody who's an unbeliever that's a Greek philosopher living 500 years before Jesus. Well, that truth just because it comes from the mouth of someone that's not God or because it comes from the mouth of someone who's not a Christian, that doesn't make it not God's truth. Mm. The natural law and the way that God has revealed all of nature, all of society reveals the truth about things. There's consequences to certain things that you could look at and go, oh, clearly the design of the world doesn't reward this or it's not in harmony with this. And so the natural law, which you can observe with human wisdom and nature, like I can go back and tell you, you would not have wanted to live in Assyria. <laughs> I can promise you that. It doesn't jive with the way that the created world is. But the natural law and the, the moral law that's given by God mesh. They, they, they carry out with one another. When you follow what it teaches, you find blessing. You, you do. If everybody followed it. And when it's when you depart from it, you find trouble, it, really. Um, and that's not to say that if you obey the law, you personally are always going to be rewarded. But the way that God has woven, because there's fallen people all around you and the world is broken, right? But as a people, if everybody were perfectly ethical and everybody perfectly followed the law, it would be a pretty amazing place to live. Um, and that's an eternal truth. And it's woven in to the way that God made the earth from moment one to the day Jesus comes back and remakes it in fire. That makes sense? I think so. Do, you, do we want to continue the Assyrian laws? I think we're on Roman now, which I think... Now, when last one. So another, this is the Assyrian Code of 1075 BC. Unless it is forbidden in the tablets, a man may strike his wife, pull her hair, her ear he may bruise or pierce, he commits no misdeed thereby. So you could you could beat your wife and that. And by the way, Islam allows for you to beat your wife. I've heard I've heard imams giving commentary on how to do it appropriately. So now we get to the tables of the Roman law. And I mentioned this one earlier. A notably deformed child shall be killed immediately. To a father shall be given over a son the power of life and death. So back in there they had a tradition called paterfamilias. 
And that what that meant was the dad makes all decisions concerning the home. And you had you had infanticide where if a female was born, they were far more likely to be killed. And the dad would say, nope, we don't want that one. We have letters written from Roman soldiers back home to their expecting wives. If it's a son, keep it. If it's a daughter, discard it. That was not uncommon, but that was in the patriarchal society of Rome. Are we good with that? Because that was a popular whim of humanity for a while that diverged from what the biblical teaching would be. Another one in the table, women, even though they are a full age because of their levity of mind, shall be under guardianship. In other words, you can't trust women to make decisions for themselves. They need to be under a male guardian at all times. If she can't provide for herself or figure out how to get somebody to be her guardian, all of her property and property rights goes to a a male. They'll take the entire estate. This is why in the ancient world, Jesus particularly is very hard on divorce because men would be like, well, I don't want her anymore and just send her out. And she had no property rights. She had no recourse. Mm -hmm. She was totally at the whims of that ancient society. Plato and the Republic, probably everybody, I think most philosophers would say this is probably the greatest philosopher who ever lived, right? Most certainly the Republic is right up there at the top. A poor man who is no longer able to work because of sickness should be left to die. Well, do you want to live in that world? Not at all. Here's another one. This is Plutarch, first century. So this is the lifetime of Jesus, right? Plutarch. With full knowledge and understanding, they themselves, he's talking about people in Carthage that would go and worship these pagan gods. So this is in the Roman Empire. With full knowledge and understanding, they themselves offered up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if there were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, this is the haunting part. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without tear or moan. But should she utter a single moan or let fall a single tear, she had to forfeit the money and her child was to be sacrificed nonetheless. This is Rome. So we're talking about the great days of the Romans and the Greeks where it's like, let the poor die. If you can't work, you're meaningless. You know, children have no right to life. You know, men can just kill people. Women are buying the children of other women to sacrifice and and kill and they're not allowed to cry because nobody wants to be inconvenienced by a guilt trip of this mother who's weeping over her slain child. This is the world that the gospel was born into. And when we think, oh my gosh, apart from the gospel and apart from the absolutes of God, we would, we're just so much better because we're enlightened now. Like it was the most enlightened society. The Germans had all the technology and all the music and all the philosophers. They were the height of Europe post-enlightenment, and that led into the greatest evil that probably the world's ever seen. And so when you say, oh, human wisdom, we're, we're beyond all this now. No, my goodness, when you get away from God's absolutes, there's no limits to the evils that humanity will do. So when God comes and says, here are my laws, here's 10 laws that cover broadly all of life, hold to these ethics, they're really, really important. And when you hear people say the Judeo-Christian ethic is really important for the foundation of the West, that cannot be overstated. The Ten Commandments are so important. And once you abandon them and say, we'll figure it out on our own, oh my goodness, please let me find a different place to live because that's not going to end well. My mom's just kind of 
one. It, I, it's just all very revealing about like what we care about and what we don't care about, I think is what I'm getting from all of this, which is kind of scary. Because you think of like all the, the laws we have today, it's just like very, like everything that everybody goes so hard for reveals so much about what is quote unquote, like eternal to us. And then everything that the Lord is like, no, this is what matters, doesn't actually matter to anybody. And I think that's just a little scary to me. Yeah. Yeah. And just like God's law reveals the character of God, our laws reveal the character of our gods, little g gods that we chase mm-hmm. after. Like our laws just come from what we worship and this is what's right for us. And we can see that it's a messy human heart world right now. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't take a genius. I mean, if, as a pastor, I can tell you that every time I'm counseling somebody that is really devastated by life, I can tell you it's it's the cruelty of the gods they worship. Mm. It's it's I'm chasing after money, 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 money. And it doesn't care about you. It'll enslave you. It'll make your entire life revolved around the pursuit of it. It's not going to give you one iota of peace or love or value and it'll enslave you. Sex. I mean, if you chase sexual pleasure for the rest of your life, I can tell you it is going to make a mess of your life. It's going to wreck your relationships. It's going to wreck your health. It's going to. It's like God's design. You're not meant to chase these other gods. They will abuse you. They will leave you hollow and empty and miserable and depressed. You're not supposed to chase them. And so when God comes with the Ten Commandments, you know, we look at laws and thou shalt and thou shalt nots and like, oh, God's this big bully tyrant. But let me, let me put the Ten Commandments, so we're going to run through them because obviously we're not going to make it very far in this first episode, which I'm good with because I think understanding the importance of the Ten Commandments is, is really good before you just get into the thou shouts and thou shouts. But let me just, if I could rephrase it, here's the Ten Commandments if God were, were giving out a positive spin, which we should because it is meant to come with this positive spin. So the first, first of the commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. And so what that means is from a, a positive spin on that is we praise God by recognizing that everything belongs to him. Mm. And think about how that frees you up. Like everything is, is un, in submission to him. I don't control it. I'm not in charge of it. I don't have to sit and fret about how everything's going to play out because you know what? I'm not sovereign. I, he's God. I'm not. Like there's some freedom into that. I have to do my part. God calls me to play a role. But ultimately, he is the one who's sovereign over all results. He, everything belongs to him, he's, which means he's in control and he's sovereign. If he loves me enough to die for me, then I can yield everything that I want to be God over to him and trust that he knows what he's doing better than I. And man, there's peace in that. That's a beautiful gift that God has given to us. Then the next one, we glorify God by recognizing that he alone can satisfy us. If God is telling you, don't chase after your internal personal satisfaction by chasing money and sex and all these other power and reputation and people pleasing and da-da-da-da-da, all counseling is filled with people who's chasing those things. Mm. They leave you empty. They leave you hollow. They leave you insecure. But what if God said, I alone satisfy you? I'm an infinite God, and I love you so much that I would give my son to satisfy your life. Come to me. I will quench your hunger. I'll satisfy your thirst. I will, I will fill you with me. Just let go of these petty dead idols that can't do anything for you. Like, what a loving God to make that offer. Like, that's a really positive, amazing thing. Or or don't take his name in vain. Well, we honor the Lord by respecting his name and his identity. Like, think about this. God is saying, 
here's my character. Who's, here's who I am. I'm calling you to share in, in my identity, right? You call yourself Christians. That, that should mean something. And so I'm, I'm branding this world with my name. It should be precious and valuable. It should come along with it, this ethic of the Ten Commandments. This is a beautiful, heavenly picture. That name is worth protecting. Have something that's sacred, because living in a world where nothing is sacred is gross. Mm. Have things that are set apart, that are, that are higher ideals than anything you can find in this world. Four, you shall rest on the Sabbath, work six days and rest on the Sabbath, keep it holy. Like, think about this, that you have a God that comes to you and says, every other system in this world, all other people and all other religions come to you and say, come earn it. You want, you want my approval? You want, you want my love? You better start groveling. <laughs> you better go to the, to, to the hamster wheel and work, 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 work. And here you have a commandment that is so kind that God says, stop you know what? Like you're precious to me because of who you are. Yeah. It's not about you spinning and doing and everything else. I want you to stop and just come be with me. Wow. Like what an incredible offer. And then you get to the fifth one. We honor our parents, right? Because we believe that family is a sacred gift. We honor those that have come before us. We're humble enough to know that generations that have come before us might've learned a thing or two by walking through life ahead of us. So it's honoring the elderly, you, you know, n- not to murder. Well, we treasure human life. It's sacred and it's worthy of dignity. Of course, like, do you want to live in a world where that's not a thing or, or don't commit adultery? Man, we hold that marriage is sacred and you should have a relationship in this world with someone that is entirely trustworthy, that loves you, that is a sanctuary for you, that you're safe with, that you don't have to worry about sharing and, and perversion and everything else outside of that. Like it's really sacred and wholesome and beautiful. And stealing, right? Don't steal. Well, we respect property and the labor of others. We're not just mo- you know, mooching off and stealing and breaking in and looting and living in a society where anything you own is up for grabs. There's, there's no security in that kind of society. Who would want to live that? And so God's saying, if you're going to be my people, this is what it looks like. You know, don't lie. You know, don't bear false witness. You're devoted to the truth. And you're protecting the reputation of others. You're not, you're not slandering them. You're not gossiping about them. You're upholding the truth, wanting things to be beautiful. And the last one is you know, not coveting your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's stuff. Well, you're grateful. If, if, you're not, if you're not coveting, that means that God is calling on you to cultivate a heart of gratitude that's grateful for what you have and you're not seeking everyone else's stuff. This culture of envy that we live in right now where you know, everybody else is the enemy and they've taken all of our stuff and we have to go get it back and we're at war with each other over what everyone else has and how we're privileged and you know, we're oppressed and everything else. Stop. Mm. Be grateful and content with the life and the blessings that God has given to you. Imagine a world that took the Ten Commandments and the beauty that comes with them and all of those positive implications. Imagine a world where we had wise leaders that are like, yes, this is the kind of society that we want to craft for our people. And by the way, the kind of parents that take this and say, this is the kind of life I want for my children. It's beautiful. And everything else, everything that goes outside of this is destructive. It just breeds tears and depression and anxiety and insecurity. Like, I don't, I don't want to live in a world like that. I'm, I, the reason why I'm looking forward to heaven is heaven is this. 
Mm. This world is always going to be a broken version of this, but it doesn't mean that we should pursue it. That our prayer should be that we want heaven to come down. We want this earth to be as it is in heaven because as it is in heaven is this. And so that first commandment, which I think we may only get through one or two commandments today, which I'm good with, but that first commandment that says, you know, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, what that means is if you take away the universal nature of truth, where God's truth in the Ten Commandments, because what he's saying is, I'm the Lord, none of you are. I'm the one who has authority, ultimately, in the realm of truth, none of you do. Well, like imagine our society just takes an eraser and takes that universal umbrella of truth that is over all of us that we should all subscribe to because it's reality. It's reflected in the natural law as much as it is in the scripture. And we go up to God and we go, we don't want your opinion anymore, God, and we erase him. And so now that umbrella that's universally true over all people is gone. What gets to make truth now? Whoever's in charge. Whoever has the power at that moment. And it's always changing. It's always changing. And so that's where you find, you know, totalitarian governments. Well, guess, you know, when Hitler seizes and he becomes high and mighty, he makes the morality. When you go to communist China, Mao gets to make the morality. When you go to the communist revolution of Russia, Stalin or Lenin gets to make the morality. And how does that work for everybody under that? Not good. Not good. Massive millions of people die. When, whenever you have no consensus, no societal agreement that there is one truth that speaks over all of us, then it becomes might makes right. It's whoever can seize the power. And that, by the way, let me, let me pause there because it's what we see in our society. Do you want to know why our society is so filled with hatred toward our political opponents it's because for the first time in a long time in our nation's history it's we don't have a universal truth we don't have a god that speaks over the nation that everybody goes okay i believe this we hold this in common right so if there is no god then it becomes like we just talked about whoever has power gets to determine all things And there's a lot at stake as to who becomes in power because we've abandoned the higher power that's above all humanity. And so now whoever wins the presidency and whoever controls Congress and whoever's on the Supreme Court gets to determine things that if you were to talk to our founders, they have no voice in. Mm. They do not get to make right and wrong. There is a truth that reigns over all people that our founders would say were self-evident right? These truths that are self-evident and where do they come from? From our creator. And these rights are given to men. Now we live in a culture where we've erased this idea of a universal truth and a God that speaks virtue and systems and ethics over all of us. That's gone now. And so we have this battle of people and people like me, they're like, what do you mean that's virtuous? How in the world is, how have, how have we become a society that has embraced behaviors that are utterly hostile to what god says Mm. and now everybody's frantic about who gets to determine what truth is and we hate the other side 
because now it matters because might we live in a society now that's not under the lord we live in a society where might makes right and we want our side to have might it's a scary scary situation yeah especially in our country and i guess that's all we know is that we have to be careful to keep our whatever side you're on your side accountable because how you we've watched this since 2000 maybe that's that's all i can think about but the flip-flop like one party's in charge and they do whatever they want because they have the power then oh all of a sudden it flips over and they're now just trying to get back for the last four to eight years that you did. And we've been on this cycle of flip, flop, flip, flop, where mm-hmm. we're just trying to gain back power when we finally have it. And we just crush everybody on the other side and all the values of the other side and whatever it is that it just becomes complete chaos. And we have to be really careful. Like mm-hmm. we're going to have to stop that cycle or we're not going to have a country anymore. Yeah. I mean, we're teetering. It feels like, yeah. You know, if I'm looking at both sides, you know, one of the interesting things, and maybe we'll finish here, I don't know that we'll get beyond the first commandment, but I'm all right with that. Like I said, when Jesus is around, they had real political divisions Hmm. among the religious, right? You had the the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees and you had the Herodians and the Essenes and the Zealots. And I mean, everybody comes with a unique thing. And the the thing that I find interesting is when you go to the Bible, because in in all those cultures, you could plug them in like, okay, this, this group is very much like the Republicans and this group's very much like the Democrats and this group's very much like the Libertarians. And you can kind of plug in like they're very similar. And what's interesting is every single one of those groups hated Jesus Hmm. because the reality is, is when you're following the Lord, he does not fit nice into any of those political paradigms. He calls everybody to stretch he calls everybody to stretch. Like, so the conservatives are all about the law. We're all about the prophetic. We're all about this is what's right and wrong, and we want to jump up and down, and all of that is really, really wonderful. But why didn't Jesus get along with them? Well, he offered grace. And he said the worst things about them. Yeah, he, like, he was very angry at them, right? Because they were oppressive with their stuff. And so he comes, and he's very much about the law. He's very much about virtue. It's really important to him. He dies for sin right? He's not a fan. And yet he's compassionate and merciful. And we're living in a society where the knee jerk of both sides is so vitriolic that it's becoming very much unlike him. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, you know, the big government Herodians or whatever, they hated him too. You know, they, everybody wanted him dead. And yet he goes to them and he goes to people and he says, no, leave your sin. You're enslaved. It's destroying you. You need to go and you need to express a life of obedience and worship. So it's like he calls both sides and says, you're incomplete without me. In between is this this gospel golden thread that calls both sides of the extremes to come to the middle. Now, I'll tell you, I'm I'm very much on one side of the camp. If I think probably a lot of people know I think the division is disproportionately like, I don't think there's a moral equivalence between the two major parties right now. I'm very much rooting in one direction, but I'm terrified that my camp is going to overreact, right? And I think I'm terrified that the other side sees everybody as evil who's not exactly like them. And if Jesus were to walk in between the two, he would be savaged today. He would be hated by everybody just like he was back then. And so the goal of the Christian is, yes, we need to get back to virtue. We need to see the Ten Commandments. We need to to hold up the eternal truths, but to remember that when Jesus comes, he sees everybody who's struggling in all this mess, 
made in the image of God, yeah. worthy of dignity. You're gonna, he's gonna tell you the truth, and it might really make you angry, and he may have to dust, you know, shake the dust off his feet and move on to the next town because everybody in that town hated him. But he's gonna show dignity. He's gonna speak truth, and he's gonna show dignity. And believers have to walk through all this chaos, which is infuriating at times. And remember, we are a people who show grace and dignity as we speak truth. We need courage, mm-hmm. but we need grace. Yeah, and I think it's to check ourselves on all these first. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about Plato, but he has that famous saying that the city is the soul writ large. Mm-hmm. So if, it, if our church is made up of a bunch of souls, it's saying, okay, are, are we as a church, do we, do we value the Ten Commandments in a way that's noticeable? Because if you go down the list of those, even we live in such a crazy culture, even like just think about the Sabbath. Man, what a great ethic to give to a world who is dying from busyness and who's exhausted and overwhelmed and who's just trying to perform for love. And then when they finally get to the top, they're like, oh, is this it? Yeah. I've wasted my life. No one on their deathbed's like, man, wish I would have worked harder. Right. Wish I wouldn't have taken that extra Sunday off. Man, that's just one of the 10. And it could be just astounding mm-hmm. to a world that is desperate need for the gospel. Yeah. I mean, our church is in a fairly, I mean, one of the more wealthy areas of Fort Lauderdale. And so we have a mix, but we have a lot of people that are captains of, of industry CEOs that, that make very, very healthy livings. And you talk to them and they're, you know, everybody's like, Oh, they've got it made. They've got, and it's like, you talk to them and they've chased down all this stuff and it's hollow. Mm. You know, one of my favorite things that I came to realize about suffering um, is that the, the two greatest, it seems in the old Testament anyway, the two greatest pictures of suffering come from Job, right? One of, one of them is Job. And what is Job's issue? He's lost everything. When everybody looks at Job, you're like, oh, I totally understand. That would have been miserable. You know, you lose your family, you lose your industry, you lose your money. Everybody's, you know, railing and spitting at him and hurling insults at him. Like, I totally understand that suffering. But the, the other book of the Bible that almost reads, like almost suicidal to some extent, where he's like, life is meaningless, I wish I was never born, is Ecclesiastes. And what's his issue? He's got everything and it's empty. So think about that. Like the greatest expressions of depression in the Bible, the Old Testament are, I've lost it all and I've got it all, which means all, all the stuff, it can't, it can't heal you. You can chase down all the money and all the fame and all the reputation and all the wisdom, and you got the writer of Ecclesiastes going, I've already been there. It's not there. Don't chase this rabbit. Don't get on the hamster wheel. You're going to spend your whole life chasing to, to nail this stuff down, and I'm telling you, I've been to the summit of that mountain, and ugh, it's empty. You need the Lord. And what is Job? I've lost it all, and the Lord was enough. Mm. Like The message of both of them is all, all the stuff isn't going to matter what you need is the lord and when you have the lord whether it's in abundance or little it's enough and the ten commandments is coming out of the gate saying hey he's called you you're his he rescued you long before he came to you and said here's my expectations now and then he loves you enough to give you expectations that are a roadmap of a life a society a family that will be healthy and blessed right it's from a loving God. The law should be something like David talks about this in the Psalms, how he delights in the law. The law's hard. We fail at it all the time, right? 
But when we really walk in the rhythm that God has set for us and we get his design and we, by the power of the spirit, we come into alignment with the way that he's made the world and made us to live in the world, there's delight to be had in the law. Marriage and life and parenthood and society, these are beautiful things when they're done in alignment with God's design. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, we made it through one of the Ten, ten Commandments. I promise this will not be a ten-part series. It just can't be. <laughs> We're going to so we'll, try, though. We'll pick up the speed as we go on, because these are rich, man. The Ten Commandments are rich and profound. And so I hope that this was edifying for you, that you got something out of it. Um, some heavy stuff, but it's also profound in a good way. And I hope... I hope everybody walks away from it going, yeah, you know what? I really want the design of God to take over in my life. So next week, we'll jump into the second commandment <laughs> and possibly the third and fourth, uh, which are all commandments that are dealing with how we relate to God. It's really beautiful. Join us next time on the Out of Water Podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.